I wasn't a particularly cool teenager, but um, I used to listen to a, a band, it was a Christian band, called DC Talk. Um, if you're slightly, I don't know, there's a few smiles, okay. Um, one of their, their songs always sort of stuck in my head. Or it was a quote at the beginning of a song, it turns out it's from a Catholic writer, a guy called Brennan Manning. And it went like this, it said, The greatest single cause of atheism in the world today is Christians who acknowledge Jesus with their lips, and walk out the door and deny him by their lifestyle. That is what an unbelieving world simply finds unbelievable. So I agree with that completely. Um, I don't know if it's particularly true, but I do know that uh, that, that would be a contradiction in terms for Paul. And if you saw that, as you're reading through Titus 1. One of the drumbeats that goes right the way through the letter is this idea of doing good. Christians are transformed people. They are people who do Good. You get it in chapter 1 here in verse 8 when he's talking about elders and one who loves what is good. You get it in verse 16 as you see the opponents. They are unfit for doing anything good. In chapter 2 for next week the various groups that he speaks to. Verse 3 to teach what is good. Verse 5 to be kind, to actually to be good. Verse 7, that to do what is good. You get it later in chapter 2 as well. Verse 14, God has purified for himself a people eager to do what is good. Chapter 3 as well. Verse 1, to be ready to do what is good. Verse 8, careful to devote themselves to doing what is good. Verse 14, our people must learn to devote themselves to doing what is good again and again and again. It's a drumbeat that goes right the way through the letter. Paul wants to hit it home to us. What is this this goodness about. What does it mean? It's something we're going to add to kind of week on week. Um, just one thing for now to be clear on. It is not, it is not being good so that you have a relationship with God. That's something that people can get really muddled on. It's not as if God is there as a sort of grumpy headmaster and we do good stuff to try and stay out of his office. To try never to meet him. That's not it at all. Eager to do good is about living changed lives. It's transformed lives. It's that this gospel of Jesus really works. It changes people. And and as they are transformed, as they are changed, as we'll see in future weeks, and people notice, these good lives go hand in hand with gospel proclamation, with what we say. Paul gives it in 2 verse 14, uh, Jesus gave himself for us to redeem, um, so Jesus, he gave himself for us to redeem us from all wickedness and to purify for himself a people that are his very own, eager to do what is good. And so the context for those changed lives, that doing good, is the local church. Which again is why Titus goes on about church so much. A big focus. Chapter 1, we're going to see it in a bit. He zooms in on leadership, on elders or overseers. Chapter 2, for next week, he looks at different groups within the church. And particularly as well how the groups interact. How different generations are to interact. And then chapter 3, a couple of weeks time, how this, this church, the household of God, relates to the world. To those outside the church. So we're going to dive into chapter 1. Um, we're going to split it into three. I'm not a great fan of splitting it into three, but we're going to this week. Um, verses one to four, gospel foundations. Uh, verses five to nine, then something like gospel leadership. And then verse ten to sixteen, 
gospel hindrances. So 1 to 4 foundations, 5 to 9 leadership, and 10 to 16 hindrances, things that get in the way of the gospel working. So 1 to 4 gospel foundations, Paul lays on the table for us at the beginning the reason we ought to listen to him. In a world of voices, in a world of messages, why listen to Paul? Why bother with what he says? I want you to notice with me the, the who and the what and the why and the how of Paul's ministry, very briefly. The who and the what and the why and the how. The who, well it's Paul, that's pretty obvious. Paul, he describes himself as a servant of God, first of all, a slave. The slave in those days were the property of their master. All that he was was because of his master. He belonged to him. He owed everything, utter utter dependence, utter reliance. You look to your master for protection. You look to your master for provision. And so Paul is the servant. doesn't take much of it to kind of draw the line to us. In our culture of, of rights and of power, and we easily bristle in the idea of being a servant. We don't like that. The thought of being a servant to God, we're okay with it sometimes, but then there's light shining on different bits of our lives. The thought of giving him our all, of trusting him with our all, and we're still a bit uncomfortable. But he's the boss, we're, we're his. All that we are, all that we have is because of him. We look to him for protection. We look to him to provide. We're servants. The complication comes when we start to look elsewhere for these things. And we find that they don't work. He's a God we can trust. You know, even in the dark times, even when life is hard, we can trust him as our master because we are his servants. He's a God who loves us. He loves us enough to give us himself. We're servants. And to be a servant of that kind of generous God who loves us is liberating. It, it transforms us. It frees us. It means we can be who we were made to be. So Paul's a servant. Paul's also an apostle. An apostle simply means that Jesus has sent him. Jesus has given Paul a job. And what is this job? Well, look at verse 1. It's, it's to further the faith of God's elect. Paul's, Paul's reason for being is for the elect, those whom God has chosen, the people of God. And it's to do with their faith, their trust in God. And then he zooms in on one aspect in particular, which I find quite striking. It's his knowledge of the truth that leads to godliness. It's been the theme for this morning, hasn't it? This knowledge of the truth that leads to godliness. You, to walk out the door and to deny him by your lifestyle, that doesn't really work. It doesn't match up. It, it ties up as well with the idea of being good people who live good lives. And so we say, well, why this? Why this in particular, Paul? Why are you focusing in on this? We'll come on to it in a bit in our final section. But as often with Paul, you find that the opening verses, the first few words, give us not just kind of greetings from Paul, but the introduction to the themes of the letter. And we'll see it in a bit. But now just glance at verse 16. So Amy read for us, they claim to know God, 
but by their actions they deny him. They're detestable, disobedient and unfit for doing anything good. There are people around, they're checking the box, they're claiming to be believers, and yet you look at their lives and you see it's not true. It's very sad. The knowledge of the truth that leads to godliness. So who? Paul, servant, apostle. Uh, what? Well, he deals with the elect. He deals with faith. This faith that leads to godliness. Now, why? And he begins at the end there in verse 2, in the hope of eternal life. I think if you know what's coming then, then you know where to invest now. If the future is certain, you know what matters now. You know where to put your time and your energy and your love and your money, your priorities now. And we say, how can I trust this hope? Why should I trust this hope? People, people let me down the whole time. How can I trust this hope? How do I know that God is dependable? They're the kind of questions we ask, aren't they? Paul says it's because God makes promises. He makes promises before the beginning of time. And unlike the Cretans, verse 12, God does not lie. We can trust him. He's the kind of God who always follows through on his promises. The kind of God we can lean on, we can rely on, even when it's dark. And that's clear because verse 3, at the appointed season, in line with the plan, Jesus came, the word was brought to life. And it's through Paul's preaching that that is known. That's the how question. That's the how of Paul's ministry. It's through preaching. It's through preaching. It's through the word. He's preaching about Jesus with a message entrusted to him by Jesus. Now, it can be easy to be disillusioned or, or unsure or doubtful, but we mustn't miss how powerful the gospel message is. Notice in the first few verses then, it's powerful enough to change you. The gospel can change you. Truth that leads to godliness. It's powerful enough, verse 4, to birth Titus. He's Paul's true son in the common faith. Powerful in verse 5 to begin churches. That's what Titus is there for. He's finishing the job that's already begun. I want to say again that's, that's worth pondering if you're here as a Christian. Because it might be that you're tired. You're tired of falling into sin again and again and again. And you're tired of it. But know that the gospel changes lives. The gospel transforms people. As God deals with us, there is hope in the darkness. We'll see much more about that in chapter 2, so come back next week, or listen in next week, and we'll hear how God does that. It might be that you're here as a visitor. Um, I'm relatively new, so I don't know who visitors are particularly, but if you're here as a visitor, you might not call yourself a Christian. You might just be looking in on Christian things for a for a first glance or a second glance, and there are various words being banded around that don't mean that much. Um, I think verse 4 is really helpful as we just think about what the Christian faith is. What is at the core of it? 
There's some great words that he uses. Grace and peace from God the Father and Christ Jesus our Saviour. Now the word gospel, which is the kind of word that Christians use all the time, means good news. Gospel is good news. And it's the good news that only through Jesus, through his death on the cross, can we be friends with God. It's why Paul says that Jesus is our Saviour in verse 4. That implies that we need saving from something. Because of God's perfect goodness. He can't just overlook our sin and the dirtiness in our hearts. He can't just ignore it. And so he does something about it. He sends his son and he dies on a cross and that just anger against our sin goes upon himself. It's the only hope for the world. And because of that then we have grace. Grace means God's generosity, his kindness in giving us what we don't deserve. We have peace from God. In verse 4 there, and we have peace with God. They aren't random words as he greets them. They will underpin the letter, the foundation for the letter, the foundation for Paul. And I take it it was that message of peace, that grace, that gospel, that Paul preached on Crete. He travelled around and these little churches get started. People were forgiven, lives were transformed. Little baby tiny seedlings, churches. And Titus is there to go and sort out these churches. And one of the things I've spotted at Maudlin Rose um, is the vast number of people who seem to grow their own vegetables. It's still a little bit like the good life. It's, it's remarkable. Um, I want you to imagine with me that you're, you're on the allotment, whatever it is you do, and you have your, your radishes and your lettuces, you, you plant them, you're dreaming of some kind of summer salad, um, and you want to give them the best chance to thrive that you can. I've not been infected with it, but I presume you sort of do something with fertiliser, you put kind of manure on it, you try and water it if it needs water, you might put a, you put a plastic bottle over it to keep the bugs off and stuff. You might do that, I'm not really sure. You, you, you do things to help it grow, don't you? You do stuff to try and make it grow. Well, so Titus is to do stuff. He's to appoint elders to help this church to grow. He's creating a structure whereby it's going to thrive, whereby the gospel will continue to flourish in people's lives. So this is 5 to 9, then we've got gospel leadership. Uh, before we dive in, just three things to say. Notice that in verse 6 and verse 7, he uses different words, and I think for the same role. He says an elder and an overseer. I think that's quite deliberate. I think the elder word picks up sort of ideas of a leader of a, a local household. Your relationship with your, with your uh, wife and your children is about being a godly husband and a godly dad, and that's kind of the training ball before you jump in at the deep end of looking after God's household. Uh, the overseer is a steward of God's work. Notice as well, secondly, that there's this repetition of blameless. An elder, an overseer, is to be blameless. Verse 6 and verse 7 again. He's, he's underlining it for us. He's putting it in bold for us. Blameless isn't about perfection, but it's about a reputation. It's about a respect that these church leaders should have. It was vital because of the prevailing culture around the Mediterranean at the time. There was this culture of, of honour and shame. So it was vital for that. But it was vital too, as we'll see, because Crete wasn't a particularly nice place to be. 
There were particularly nasty elements in the culture there. And if these leaders can't point the way for the church, then, then he can. So there's blameless, secondly. And thirdly, just notice in verse 5 on the way past that it's elders, plural. Wherever possible and whenever you can, and there should be a plurality of leaders in the church, a plurality of elders. But you're sat there and you're thinking, well, I'm never going to be an elder. So I've got ten minutes to switch off and have a, have a few, have a few um, sleeps. I think my comment to you would be, whilst this is a description of eldership, this is a description of church leaders, I don't think I see any aspects that are not applying to any Christian, to the normal Christian. This is just what a godly person looks like. This is the knowledge of the truth that leads to godliness. It's there in glorious technicolour. Each little description he gives us is an actual sort of brushstroke in the portrait. There's loads you can say on each. Um, we're going to be briefly moving over each one as we work through at verse 6 and verse 7 and verse 8. So, faithful to his wife, or the husband of but one wife. It's a man who, if he's married, is faithful, is focused, is devoted, is loyal, who loves his wife. As Christ loves the church, so he loves his wife. A man whose children believe or, or, or are trustworthy um, and not open to the charge of being wild and disobedient. So it's not just the reputation of dad, it's the family as a whole. This is not to be a divided household. His children can't have asthos. I've heard of people who, who have stepped off elderships because they've struggled with the children. His family reputation is important. He's not to be overbearing. Uh, verse 7. He's not to be a bully. When people disagree with him, he's not to ride roughshod over their feelings. You can't just make sure you always get what you want selfishly. You can't manipulate things not to be overbearing not to be quick tempered that is he must have something of a fuse in his life you can't just fly off the handle at people and when there's things you don't like you can't have a reputation of people just walking around on eggshells around you the whole time fearful of an explosion not given to drunkenness that is your disciplines you're self-controlled. You don't lean on alcohol to get you through life. Not to be violent. To be violent, to have this careful, calm composure to lead others, not to, to use physical force. We're not to pursue dishonest gain. You don't cheat on your tax returns. You have integrity in everything with how you handle money. You're famous at work for filling out your expense forms correctly, intricately. The context here, we'll see in a bit again, is, is people cheating folk out of their cash as they do their ministry. Verse 8. You must be hospitable. You're tired after a busy, stressful, annoying day at work. And yet you love people in a costly way so that you open your door to folk you've got 
things in the oven, you've got tables being set, your spare beds are out, you like people. You can't be an elder, an overseer, and not like people. You're hospitable. You love what is good, particularly it seems, the good you see in others. Encouraging the good you see in others. Your self-controls, that's that's a key word in Titus, it's something we thought about yesterday with the guys at the shed, something he'll pick up next week for the, for the younger and the older men. Self-control is someone who can't just lead others, but lead themselves. They can manage themselves. I think the word particularly highlights what you think about and how that impacts how you live. The kind of things you spend your time, sort of, your mind freewheeling in, and then how that impacts what that looks like in your life. It's the not flicking through the IKEA catalogue or the Right Move site or the Auto Trade or whatever it is, because you know it'll make you discontent. You know it's not helpful. It impacts how you live. I guess that sense self-control, particularly when you're alone. When you're on your own, nobody else is around. Upright. Upright, think absolutely just, fair, trustworthy, not corrupt. Think the stick of rock from Blackpool and everywhere you chop it, it's the same all the way through. Whatever environment you find this person in, and they're the same all the way through. Not swayed by others not swayed by their, um, their company. Holy. Holy, at the very core of who you are, you, you desire holiness, you desire to be like your God. Like your God. And disciplined. Disciplined is like self-control, but so cleverer people than me tell me, it's to do with appetites to do with your bodily appetites. It's godly restraint. Your appetites are to be your, your slaves and not your masters. Disciplined. What about you? When I read those kind of lists in the Bible, I find it all very easy to be quite sort of theoretical. I'm the kind of person who doesn't get on well with theoretical or abstract. I like examples. I like solid things to look at and think about. Um, and so I find that these lists, it's very helpful just to look at Jesus. So helpful as uh, Peter and Lisa praise, the example of Christ in godliness. So read through the Gospels afresh, see him for being the examples of these things. As, as Peter would say, it's the under-shepherds who reflect what the chief shepherd is like. He is the one who wasn't overbearing or who's quick-tempered, or drunk, or violent, or he was upright, and holy, and disciplined, and he loved people. Look at Christ, it's, it's his church, his leaders are to embody um, what he is like. So the character of the leader is utterly vital, and Paul spends a lot of time thinking about it. It's not just about character, but it's largely about character. The extra dimension is in verse 9. See it there, it's someone who not only shows the, the fruit of knowing the truth, the godliness that comes from truth, but it is knowing that truth as well. Someone who holds to it. 
someone who speaks it, someone who can encourage others, someone who can stand up and say no when it's opposed. But character is vital. I think that's something we need to hear. I think we can easily get the emphasis wrong as we're seeking to think about elders, or particularly those in sort of set-aside, paid pastoral ministry. I was talking to a very wise friend recently. He put his, put his finger on it and he said, uh, we very easily, we've created a culture whereby gifted people can play the game. They're great at understanding the Bible. Perhaps they're able to teach it well from the front. There's a buzz about them. People get excited. And yet behind closed doors, they're very different. And so you begin to ask difficult questions. You go through verse 7 and verse 8 and you dig around and it turns out they're miles off. And then they're left confused. You can't encourage them towards eldership or full-time paid ministry. They've, they've jumped through the public hoops and they've done brilliantly. But you hone on character and it's very different. We overemphasize teaching and we underemphasize character, and that is to our detriment in the long term. Leaders must have both. They must have a life adorned by the fruit of gospel growth and lips that can speak of the gospel as well. But we must have both. If you're here this morning, you're aspiring to eldership or to full time paid gospel ministry, don't rush over verse 6 and verse 7 and verse 8. They are the cake, they're not the icing. In fact, if you're here and you're not aspiring to eldership or full-time paid ministry, don't rush over verse 6 and verse 7 and verse 8. That is the Christ-like fruit of, of knowing the gospel. Knowing the truth that leads to godliness. We're all unfinished articles. We've all got a long way to go. But they're the verses to pray about. Pray them for yourself, pray them for your your spouse, your home group, for the church, for the leaders in the church. Pray that Morgan Road would have elders who, who stick out like a sore thumb because they're so godly in this culture. Because our culture is alien and it is anti. It is anti the gospel. It's just the way it was on Crete as well, verse 10 to 16. There are these gospel hindrances. So we're back on the allotment. Um, we're wanting our church plant to grow and we've been doing stuff we've been appointing elders leaders in the church to, to help the plant to grow and now it becomes pretty clear why that's necessary and to stretch the metaphor the soil is pretty rubbish in the first place and you've got slugs and aphids and predators wanting to come and eat your crop that's the problem but the soil is there in verse 12 this metaphorical soil it's Crete in general I think it's like ours, it's anti-gospel, it's even one of their own prophets has said, Cretans are always liars, evil brutes, lazy gluttons. Paul's probably quoting from a poet of the time, Epimenides. In fact there's stacks of evidence, if you look back at the history, for Crete just being quite an unpleasant place to be. It wasn't a nice place to live. The Greek word meaning to lie develops from the word Crete. You're someone who lies, well then you come from Crete. It's a phrase, it's dripping with irony as well, this evil brute is actually evil beasts because apparently there are very few animals, there are very few beasts on Crete. 
His point being, you don't need beasts on Crete, because the people are beastly enough. So Crete was famous for sinfulness. The underlying culture, the society, it was renowned. As well as the soil, though, you've got these predators, these problems for this young church plant. And the shorthand for Paul, from Paul, is there in verse 10. Uh, for there are many rebellious people full of meaningless talk and deception, especially those of the circumcision group. They must be silenced because they are disrupting whole households by teaching things they ought not to teach and that for the sake of dishonest gain. These guys are teaching and their words are having an impact. People aren't sure what to believe, that the rug has been pulled out from them. If they were poor, so persuasive, but, but these guys as well. Yeah, I'm not quite sure what I'm supposed to believe now. They were probably Jewish teachers. They said something like that to be a Christian you needed to follow various aspects of the Jewish law. You get that in verse 14 as well. You see it there, talk of uh, Jewish myths, or to the merely human commands of those who reject the truth. Jewish myths, think, think speculative truth. Think truth based on Old Testament writings or potentially writings between the Old and the New Testament. It's probably similar stuff to, to Galatians or Colossians if you're familiar with those. And the commands of those who reject the truth is actually, this is new for me, this is a technical term, it, it describes man-made rules. If you're, if you're familiar with Mark's Gospel, Mark chapter 7, Jesus uses a very similar word there. You've got these Pharisees, they're obsessed with hand-washing and cleanliness and trying to get clean externally and they don't give two hoops to what's going on inside they don't care about their hearts they don't care about their sin all they're interested in is clean fingernails which is why then in verse 15 he says to the pure that is to Christians all things are pure I think that means because of the gospel you can eat what you want now but to the impure uh, then nothing is pure. For those who do not believe, that is, these teachers who don't believe are just shot through to the core with sin. Their consciences, their minds, they're corrupted. Now it is sort of listening into one side of the phone call. We're trying to work out what's going on and what they're teaching. It seems there's this Jewish aspect. It seems there's a, a money aspect as well going on. There's a money and payment element there in verse 11. They must be silenced because they are disrupting whole households by teaching things they ought not to teach. And that for the sake of dishonest gain. Remember those words in verse 7? Dishonest gain. It's likely they've been trained in, in eloquent rhetoric and public speaking and they would travel around and expect to be paid for their ministry. Travelling expenses to the extreme. It's why Paul so often labours so hard to make tents to make sure they can't accuse them of being greedy or manipulative. Yet these guys, they care about their bank balance, they don't care about people. And then in verse 16, that final nail in the coffin there, these, these teachers, they claim to know God, but by their actions they deny him. They are detestable, disobedient, unfit for doing anything good. Just like in contrast again with Paul, Paul the Apostle, for the faith of God's elect, the knowledge of the truth that leads to godliness. The contrast with the elders, 
the elders and overseers, they must hold firm to the trustworthy message. They must be blameless. It's what they say and what they do. The gospel leads to change lives. These teachers claim orthodoxy. They claim to be sound. And you look at them and you realise they're not. I guess that becomes pretty obvious now why Paul wants Titus to get in there quick to look after these baby churches. He's worried they're going to die. The, the soil is horrible. The slugs are out in force. Now Titus, get on the allotment and go and look after them. We've said it already, but as we finish, just a focus again on what Paul will say next time as well. But gospel proclamation and gospel living has to go hand in hand. That's a useful thing for me to hear because I love the Bible and I love studying it and reading it and teaching it. But that's not enough. This truth needs to impact who I am day by day. We, we, we talked about it a few weeks ago in Ephesians 4 if you were around. It's the pound coin. We put it in the vending machine. And we're hitting it and hitting it and hitting it, trying to get the gospel to drop into Monday and Tuesday and Wednesday. And how I live, where my security is, where my identity is. How that impacts my actions and my life. Where the rubber hits the road for Paul on Crete is what it looks like in your daily life. How you relate to your boss. How you relate to your spouse, to your children, to your neighbours. Where the rubber hits the road is whether the gospel makes a difference. These teachers, they were unfit for doing anything good. But Paul says this knowledge of the truth leads to godliness. 